Well, I want to congratulate you all this morning for getting here on time. Uh, it's a major accomplishment, and I don't want to let that pass unnoticed. And uh, we have a reward for you. Uh, go in the back. It's called coffee. And so uh, imbibe richly and strongly, and together we will try to stay awake in this early hour of the day, and hopefully God will speak to us. Well, last week when I introduced this series on the Psalms, I uh, used the idea or, of uh, karaoke, or some of you call it karaoke. It's hard for me to say it, but I can do it if I try hard. And I was hoping to teach you in these three weeks how to sing. Uh, now, Brian Halila is known as our singing pastor, and he's not afraid to belt out a song, bust out a song when he's in the middle of his preaching. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you this morning. But I'm going to share a little secret with you from the archives of history and that I was actually among the first CBC staff to go on stage in the church service here and sing. Yes, I know it's a shock to you, uh, but we, uh, back when we had our first worship pastor, whose name will remain unmentioned today, and she thought it would be a good idea to have the staff at that time sing a trio. So the senior pastor, Dave Anderson, the associate pastor, Tim Heron, and the youth pastor, myself, we were asked to go on the stage that morning for reasons still unknown to me and sing. And uh, that was the initiation of my musical career and also the death of it. Oh, people made some nice comments afterwards how much they appreciated it, but I did notice that we were never asked to perform again. And then I was shipped off to Japan shortly afterwards. So everyone does have a song to sing, but we don't all sing from the playlist, same playlist that I mentioned last week. The Psalms are songs that reflect the mood and emotions of the writers. And the Psalms remind us that God receives us where we are. The song I sing, or that you may sing, will reflect the circumstances, feeling, and the mood, whatever you're in at that day, and there is a song for you for each mood. There is a psalm for you. So perhaps it's appropriate for me to introduce today's psalm with another well-known song. I put a song in your head last week, and maybe you got it out by now, and I'm going to help you get it out by putting another song in your head. So that song goes, I am a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. And that song was performed by Simon and Garfunkel. And again, it was performed in 1965, the same year that the Beatles sang Help. We were on a roll in the year of 1965. That was the magical year for music. So this song was written by Paul Simon and recorded initially as a solo and then sung by the famous duo Simon and Garfunkel. If you ever heard this song, it's kind of a depressing song, even though it's got an upbeat to it. The song reflects, you know, words of isolation, desperation, loneliness, internal conflict. It's a man who is wanting to seal himself off from society and from life because he has been hurt. And he says he's a rock, he's an island. Well, this thought, song reflects thoughts that occasionally bubble to the surface in our hearts, if we're honest. People can be difficult. Life is hard to understand. And the popular term these days is I want to find a safe space where I can recover and I can be what I want to be and be in the circumstances I want to be. 
But the truth of the matter is, is I am not a rock. I'm not an island. I feel pain. I cry. I hurt. I doubt. I may have deep doubts that I dare not express to others. So today, as we get started here, I want to share a story with you. Mr. Tani had such doubts. I'd like to share his story with you this morning as we get started. On July 22, 1996, an article appeared in the Los Angeles Times, and it was titled, Caught in the Crossfire of the Pacific Apple War. And the first sentence of the introductory paragraph goes on to say, Japanese scientist takes his own life after his collaboration with U.S. counterparts makes him a target for angry farmers and Tokyo bureaucrats. It was a story that went unnoticed by most, but as I conducted Mr. Tani's funeral a few weeks earlier, I was well aware of the story. See, Tani Akio-san was a research scientist for Japan's agricultural department and lived in Hokkaido, where we were doing church planting at the time. He was also a member of that church plant that we were at. And Mr. Tani was a quiet, unassuming man, 53 years old. He loved to sing, he loved flowers, and he was a solid believer. But he discovered in his research as an as a, uh, agricultural research scientist that there was a similar strain of bacteria in the local Japanese apple trees, which is the major crop in the area, that had previously swept through U.S. crops, creating much damage. And this was a critical discovery because Japanese trade negotiators at the time had insisted this disease did not exist in Japan. Therefore, the Japanese officials barred the import of all apples from the U.S., making the Americans angry, while the Japanese farmers are very happy about this because they had no competition. But Mr. Tani's research indicated otherwise. But it was quickly buried in Japan. But the news eventually leaked out. The Australian Agricultural Department caught wind of this news, and they quickly moved to bar the import of all apples from Hokkaido, and other countries soon followed suits. So the Hokkaido farmers were furious and demanded Mr. Tani's scalp. Mr. Tani's sterling reputation over three decades was trashed overnight. He was devastated. He had acted on principle as a Christian, but it seemed like those principles had betrayed him. On the day he was scheduled to publicly apologize to the farmers in the area and kind of fall on his proverbial sword, instead, Mr. Tiny skipped the meeting, went to a deserted field, and drank a bottle of weed killer. His method of suicide was obviously to send a message to those that were angry with him. Along with his widow, I went to claim Mr. Tani's body at the hospital that evening, wrapping it in a car blanket, transporting it to their house in the back of my van, which is another story. We prepared the body ourselves in those days in those areas. I conducted his funeral a couple days later before hundreds of mourners, including the Lieutenant Governor of Hokkaido. But a problem of perspective had caused Mr. Tani to waver in his commitment to God. But Psalm 73 provides a glimpse of another man wavering in his faith. His name is Asaph. He was a spiritual leader of God's people, we're told in 
First Chronicles chapter 25. We also know that Asaph wrote 11 psalms, so this is no minor biblical character. But the fiery darts of unknown adverse circumstances were pulling Asaph down. He seems ready to throw in the towel and walk away when we read this psalm. And psalm 73 is his story. Quite frankly, it's a shocking psalm. It's an honest psalm. And it's easily divided in two parts, like a before and after a weight loss commercial. Psalm 73 is the first part, verses 1 through 15, talked about a false perspective that Asaph had. And then the second half goes on to talk about the true perspective that he gained in verses 16 to 28. Psalm 73 is a psalm of a survivor who walked the same road as us, where we realize that we are not rocks, we're not islands. When our hearts are diverted, when they're deceived, when we lose our way and tempted to lose our hope, this may be the song that's on your heart today. It's a difficult one to sing, but let's sing it in honesty and let's go before God and let him speak to us. So I'd like to start by reading the first portion of Psalm 73. And maybe it will mirror your own cry in times of doubt. And I encourage you to lift this song up to God as your own song. And maybe if that's not the cry of your heart today, it will be some point in the future. Let me read the first part of this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Skipping on down to verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. It's kind of a depressing psalm. At least this portion is. And obviously, Asaph, when he wrote this, is not in a good place. Well, we know why Mr. Tiny was despondent in a deserted field. What about Asaph? What is his story? We know that Asaph had a false perspective. When he writes his first words of the psalm, he is slipping in the streets. But he puts on a good front initially, we see in verse 1. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's mouthing the correct words here. This psalm seems to start out like your normal psalm, starting out with praising God. But it's kind of like quoting the Lord's Prayer without meaning it, or quoting the Apostles' Creed, or saying, God bless you, when things aren't lining up with the reality of our hearts. And the issues are much deeper here in this psalm. And matters of the heart are critical to this psalm. In fact, the heart is mentioned six times in this psalm. Asaph starts out referring to those who are pure in heart. A person who is pure in heart is clean-minded. He's totally committed. He's sold that to God. And we have to ask the question this morning, is where is our heart? Where is your heart today? What words may you be saying? What actions may you be living that are incongruent with the reality of where you are 
on your thinking and the way you're feeling and the way you're looking at life today. So Asaph goes on after mouthing these initial words in verse 1 to start revealing his inner thoughts in verses 2 to 3. And he says there, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My feet had almost slipped. What Asaph is doing here is what we classically experience in Japan. He has gone from giving the answer he thinks we want to hear, he wants us to hear. In Japanese, it's called your tatimai, the answer I think you want to hear, what you want to hear from me, to where in verses 2 and 3, he's giving his honne, his real thoughts. And we struggle with that in Japan many times. Is this what that person really means to say? Is that what they're really thinking? Or are they just saying what they think I want to hear? Now, Americans have no problems in expressing their honne and their real opinions. But in Japan, that is something that is done with great difficulty. And we have to practice what we call reading the air to understand the difference between someone's honne and their tatemai. But Asaph has gone from giving his tatemai to his honne in verses 2 to 3. And in so doing, he has placed himself in the company of other doubters in the Bible. Job, Elijah, Habakkuk, Jonah, who question God in various ways and say, why, God, is this happening? Why am I having to go through this? Asaph is sitting in a field like Mr. Tani, overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. He has been mingling with people and problems, and it led to a false perspective. Well, let me give a story about a false perspective from a young man many years ago. You've heard of the movie Ford versus Ferrari. Well, we have the sequel called Beetle versus Mustang. And when I turned 16 years old, I did what any red-blooded American male would do, and I went to the driver's license and tried to get my license. Notice that word I said tried, because I failed my first attempt. So what do I do? I go back the very next day, get my license. And then freedom comes. I, my parents had a Volkswagen Beetle that I could drive. And so I could go and pick up my friends and do fun. No longer did I have to have my dad drive me and my date to the movie where he's watching me in the rearview mirror. I had freedom, and I enjoyed that for several weeks and months, and then my perception started to change. This was an ugly car, and on top of it, it had no power. In fact, it didn't have an engine in the front. The engine's in the rear. That's luggage for the front. And also, it was unair conditioned, which is no fun in the summertime in Houston. And then it just wasn't cool. It didn't match what I think I should be driving around as a cool guy on high school campus. So I began to think and see what others were driving, and I need something different. I need something that matches my image. I need a car like that, or I need another kind of car that suits me, and I grew to hate that car. That was my perceptions of things as a 17-year-old, and this is what I thought it would take to make me happy. Well, we have all spent time in the field of dissatisfaction and doubt. And we have, let me go back there. We have spent time in that field. Maybe it's the new missionaries. Rowena and I were in Japan in October and we visited the 20 new missionaries that had gotten to Japan this year. They had been excited to get to Japan, but then the reality of life in Japan was kicking in, learning a difficult language, being in a culture they didn't understand being far away from family, having to deal with things they never dealt with before, and their perception of being in Japan had changed a bit. But this is not just something missionaries go through. 
It can be an exhausted mother. It can be a lonely single. It can be an overworked businessman or an isolated student or a disorientated retiree trying to get used to new circumstances where perception drags us down if we're not careful. And if we're not careful, instead of looking upwards, our thoughts turn inwards and can lead us downward. And this is something we must be careful about. Because I am not a rock. I am not an island. Simon and Garfunkel talk about building walls, going into fortresses, surrounding themselves with books, putting on armor, are sequestering themselves into a room in order to cut themselves off from people, cut themselves off from hurt and pain. But these things will not protect me because I feel pain. I cry. I want to drop out. I want to quit. I want to find my safe space where I will not have to experience these things. I want to disengage from life. And believe me, that has happened a lot in our society in the past couple of years with COVID accelerating those tendencies that were happening in many people's hearts. So what are the reasons for ASAP's doubts? He goes on to this in verses 4 to 9, and basically he can boil them into two reasons. First one is envy. He comes right out and says in verse 3, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy comes in many forms and is always destructive. Envy is the opposite of thankfulness. For I do not appreciate the circumstances I am, I'm in that God has put me. I do not appreciate the things God has given me, and I'm jealous of what others have or the circumstances they have. This is why this is included as one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. We're not to covet not only our neighbor's wife. We're not to covet our neighbor's children who may be doing better in school than my kids. They may be doing great in sports, and they may get great jobs. I'm not to covet my neighbor's job my neighbor's status, my neighbor's car, his lifestyle, his education, his health, his house, his furnishings. These are all the things that I can be dissatisfied and covet. It can breed discontentment, can breed anger, disappointment with God, and can lead me into a downward spiral and eventually may lead to a deserted field. But besides envy, another dynamic is going on here in Asaph's heart. And that is the problem of distortion. Asaph says in verse 4, they have no struggles, referring to the wicked, which is an incredible statement. It's almost like a fog when you're shaving in a mirror, and the mirror is fogged up, and you cannot see what you're doing, and you keep wiping it away, and things keep getting distorted. He describes the wicked here is accurately is arrogant, proud, violent, oppressive, blasphemous, But this is what he also says about the wicked. They're prosperous. They're healthy. They're problem-free. They have no struggles. So Asaph, in his pain, is distorting reality he's observing around him. And then he goes on in verses 10 to 15 to give the conclusions of his doubts, where he says, basically, God's not fair, or God's not in control, or God is not just, or God doesn't care. So he complains, does the Most High know anything? What an arrogant statement, but what an honest statement. And he says, God, are you seeing this? Are you seeing what's happening? And he goes on to conclude, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Asaph is in tremendous pain. But this is his song. This is the song that was recorded in Scripture for our benefit 
It's a song we must listen to. And he asked the question, is it worth staying committed to God? Is it? Is it worth staying committed to God? Let us wrestle with that this morning. Let us be honest with ourselves and honest with each other and honest with God. But how do we begin to engage in such thoughts? Mr. Tani's solution to the problem was in a bottle of weed killer. But, Tani, but Asaph goes on, and he contemplates as a leader. And he said, if I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Asaph is a leader of God's people. He had enough sense to know that there's a right way, a right time, and a right audience to express such dangerous thoughts, such honest thoughts. And so he shares that with us. But Mr. Tani gave in to his despondency and his doubts. How was Asaph's response different? Let's go on in Psalm 73. And he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. When my heart was greed and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Asaph needed a true perspective. And he gets that by entering into the sanctuary, as we see here. He is standing in the sanctuary now. And he says, as he begins to ponder the things he said earlier, when I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply. Even thinking about the own words he had uttered earlier, he is he is troubled by the things that he said. He says such thoughts were troublesome to him, and they were leading to bitterness, and he knew that they were grounded in ignorance, and he knew they did not line up with the truth. And we must remember that pain can lead us away from the truth. Pain can lead us away from the truth. When we're in pain, we want our pain to go away. We're tempted to seek a quick fix. I want a different employer. I want a different spouse. I want to go to a different church. I want a different friend, a different neighborhood, a different family. I want to go someplace where people will treat me better, where I will be more appreciated and get what I deserve. Truth about God, truth about my circumstances, truth about myself become easily distorted. I've seen many people change their core values and their core beliefs when they're in pain. They become like an island. They become like a rock. They seek a safe space that is not safe at all, but their pain drives them there. Like Asaph, we need a change in perspective. Where do we get it? So Asaph proceeds. He says in verse 17, It troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. What changed? What changed? Asaph left the street 
and he entered into the sanctuary of God. So we must go from slipping in the street to standing in the sanctuary. In the midst of our worship, we need to acknowledge God. In the midst of our pain, he will meet with us and we can gain a true perspective. Let me return to our story of that young man from long ago who had the ugly Volkswagen Beetle and he thought happiness just lay around the corner in another car. And so he tried to purchase that happiness. He took all the money he'd saved from odd jobs he'd had since he was 14 years old and bought the car of his dreams and it looked exactly like that. 68 Ford Mustang, that color. I was now cool and I drove something that was cool. But you know, as I drove my friends around and burning rubber everywhere, I found out these tires are expensive. And I, I had to go buy a new set of tires. And then I noticed some stain on the driveway. My radiator was leaking. It had several holes in it. It had to be replaced. And then the car wouldn't start one morning. And then I realized I get a new battery. And then it still wouldn't start. Then I realized I need a new alternator. And then the air didn't seem to be cooling properly. Then I noticed my air conditioner was broken. And so that car was spending more time in the shop and draining all my financial resources. And every day I come home, there was a Volkswagen sitting at the end of the driveway. And it was like whispering to me, I'm free. <laughs> and that whisper became louder each week and each day as I came home. So eventually that young 17-year-old had a change of perspective. He sold the Ford Mustang and he drove that Volkswagen Beetle for the next five years until he was ready to buy another car at the right time. And so I had a change of perspective. God works in us. And Asaph realized he had become like a dumb animal. He says like a brute beast in his perception of life because of his pain. He understood that the wicked themselves were on slippery ground. And he recalled the privileges of the righteous. They have God's presence. They have God's guidance. They have God's strength. They have his protection. And a trip into the presence of God can change our perspective of the presence. God's presence can change our presence. He went from slipping in the streets of life to standing in the presence of God in the sanctuary. And it made a world of difference and what he did afterwards and how he spoke afterwards. I am not a rock. I'm not an island. So where do I turn? When I realize I'm not a rock or an island, I turn to God. So Asaph concludes in verse 25, earth has nothing I desire besides you. When we find ourselves in a field of despair, God is all we need. It's not a thing, it's not a person, it's not a status, it's not a condition. God is all we need. And when our thoughts lead us downward, we must remember to look upward. We don't keep going down and down and down. Going downward, we must remember to look upward. As I said last week, this is the theme of the Psalms, that we're to look upward and in whatever feelings, whatever circumstances we're in, whatever fears we may have, whatever pain we have, we look up to God. We were made in the image of God. And we must relate to God as his image bearers. Well, the prophet Jeremiah used a different metaphor to describe similar circumstances in chapter 2, verse 13, where he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken the, me, 
The spring of living water have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And two sins are identified here, that we have forsaken God, our spring of living water, and that we have tried to dig our own cisterns that are broken and can never meet our need. But God has a full cistern, a spring ready, and we must go there when in doubt and quench our thirst. We must rest in his presence and fully partake and enter into the sanctuary into his presence. Don't just mouth the words. Live the reality. Sing where you are. See, I'll never forget picking up Mr. Tani's body at the hospital. I went largely without sleep for three days preparing for my first funeral in Japan in Japanese, attended by hundreds, prepared his body for burial, gave four services in typical Japanese style. And when it was over, it was Saturday, when it was over, I had to preach the next day to a group of people in our church who wondered how could a Christian take his own life? And they were in deep pain. Unwittingly, Mr. Tani had pulled us all into his field. So when his widow moved away a few weeks later, I was carrying out things for them, packed them up, and among them were the boxes of Mr. Tani's research. And I struggled deeply with the unfairness of it all. Was it only about apples? I had my own pain and my own doubts. But then I entered into the sanctuary of God a few days later when God spoke to me through a song. God met with me in my field of despair. In the midst of my confusion, tiredness, and pain, this is the song God gave to me. It's called Prince of Peace by Twyla Paris. Maybe you've not heard it before. But God used this to speak to me as I entered into the sanctuary with him. And maybe he'll speak to you through the words of this portion of the song we'll play this morning. Thank you. There is no I went from slipping in the streets to standing in the sanctuary as I listened to the powerful words of this song. This is a song of triumph. It's a song of hope. And if you are slipping in the streets today, I encourage you to enter into God's sanctuary. Go to the maker of all, the father of life, the prince of peace. Place your doubts, your turmoil, your disappointments at his feet. Look upward. He is the only safe space you can have. He will care 
and he will reign forevermore. He is a sanctuary we must go to. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are our refuge, you are our rock, you are our shelter, and we come to you in our times of doubt, in our times of uncertainty, and we cling to you and we cling to the truth of your word. Speak to us, meet with us, while we cast ourselves upon you, and thank you that you care for us, and we rest in you, in Jesus' name, amen.